Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is President's Day, so that means it's Monday, February 19th. I, I honestly can't believe that we are in the in the last third, practically. A little over the last third of February. Obviously, it's a leap year, so 29 days, which... Oh, God, I, I don't like that number for the amount of days in a month. Like, 28, 30, 31, fine, but 29, no gracias. But anyways... Here we are. Uh, I have a lot I want to talk about today. I want to talk about, it's pretty much going to be a Russia-centric episode. I want to talk about Alexei Navalny's death, which uh, really looks like a slow-motion murder that's been going on for years now. I also want to talk about Tucker's basically Potomkin tour of, <laughs> of, of Moscow, which has been interesting. He's kind of, pretty much I want to talk about whether he's a fellow traveler of the movement or if he's a useful idiot who doesn't actually know what he's doing, and it's kind of complicated. And then we'll also talk about this new, the, the Republican congressional fears of some sort of new nuclear weapon. Is it a psyop? Is it real coming from Russia? We'll cover that at the end. But first, I did just want to say that yesterday, Sunday, I was off. I ended up finally getting that 26.2 miles in, which is a marathon. And I think since I first ran 20 miles in Chicago, Mentally, I kept telling myself, there's no way it's going to be impossible to ever actually run the full marathon distance because my legs and knees always started to really hurt around mile 20. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if I physically can get to it, even if I'm aerobically fit and ready for it. And yesterday got over that mental hurdle. I don't know. There was just, it just felt better. I got to mile 20 and I was like, you know what? It's only 6.2 more. Let's just do it. And felt pretty good. Legs only started to get sore about 24 miles in or so. And it was kind of nice. It was a big mental barrier to get over. And so sometimes you have to just silence that internal critic and just hope to keep growing. And yeah, yesterday was big. So I was feeling good about that. Today, the legs aren't too sore either, which is a miracle that I will definitely take. <laughs> but anyways, let's start with Alexei Navalny, which I think the majority of the episode I'll be, I'll be talking about. So on February 16th, the Russian prison services reported that Alexei Navalny, who I would argue probably the most recent important opposition figure to Vladimir Putin, they, were, they noted that he died at the age of 47. We have to remember that over the last five years or so, Navalny has survived a Novichok poisoning in 2020, which is that nerve agent that was created in Russia that they've used around the world to kill dissidents and enemies and spies. And so basically he's poisoned in 2022 with Novichok. And after recovering in a German hospital, he returned to Russia by plane in January of 2021. And big surprise, he was immediately detained when his flight was diverted and landed in Moscow. Of course, the day he was detained, I believe it was the day he was detained, he also put out a documentary on Putin, which I'll talk about later, which I think really pissed off Putin and his allies. And of course, when he's detained, he's again found guilty of embezzlement and corruption which they always seem to go after him with, which I don't think is particularly accurate. But anyways, he was then sentenced to another nine years in prison. And over the last, you know, three years since then, he's kind of just been rotting away in prison. And Amnesty International and other organizations have decried this entire thing. People have been trying to see how he's doing, getting him out, and not getting into the weeds. But after not being seen for quite some time, in December 2023, it was reported that he went missing from prison for almost two weeks, and then he re-emerged in an Arctic Circle corrective colony in a place called the Yamalo 
Nanette's autonomous Orkrug. And, you know, he shows up after being gone for three weeks in this Siberian prison. And it seemed like it was kind of the Kremlin just putting out a proof of life. Like, look, this guy's still alive. And then, what, flash forward two months or so, and he's dead. And, and you know, anyways, I, I will also say that a lot of people are surprised that he even went back to Russia back in 2021. At first, I was like, yeah, he'd probably be safer abroad, safer in Germany, safer wherever. Then you also have to look at all these other Russian dissidents who have been killed over the years. And so maybe he wouldn't be safer, to be honest. But I also think that I kind of get why he goes back because he wanted to, as much as he could, be a symbol of opposition to the Putin regime from inside Russia. He, he's, he's always been good at connecting with the Russian people. And I think he felt he had a better purpose to serve, even if it ended up with his death, if he was in Russia doing it internally. I think the messaging is better than, say, you're sitting in a, I don't know, a Berlin house protected, putting out messages against the Russian government, but you're safe in Western Europe. And so I understand why he did it. He needed to be the symbol, and he was brave and went back, and obviously he died. And of course, I can't really say it's at all surprising. It's infuriating. It's tragic because pretty much the movement he created, which was a symbol of anti-Kremlin mobilization, it's kind of dead now at least for now. And him dying, you know, he was the head of it. It it is symbolic. It's a symbolic end to a lot of the opposition to Putin, which is really tragic in a lot of ways. And to myself, and I think everyone else that was following this, it seemed pretty obvious that A, when he was detained, when coming back to Russia, and then B, when he's moved to this Siberian prison, that he was going to die, right? And basically, he was put in an inhospitable prison, with awful conditions, not taken care of. They've tried to poison him many times. He's been partially blinded in one eye back in, what, I think the mid-2010s. And he's in a place with awful conditions, not given any medical treatment or help. Like, obviously, they're just trying to let him slowly die, right? I saw saw someone call this um, a slow-motion murder, and I think that's absolutely accurate because, like, Russia didn't directly kill him probably a couple days ago. I mean, we'll never probably know, but... They slowly, intentionally let him die, slowly killed him over a long time. Yeah, he was murdered by the Russian government, basically, even if it wasn't in five minutes, but over five years. And I think that's something, you know, pretty important to note. So anyways, I kind of want to do just a look back at his legacy a little bit. Um, Let's start with why he was a threat to Putin, right? Let's talk about why the Kremlin saw Navalny as such a threat, and then we'll maybe get into my takes and thoughts and some of the criticisms of him, because I think a lot of Western progressives probably wouldn't align with a lot of his actual views. But again, as I've talked about before, sometimes the opposition to the authoritarian and to the dictator, it can't be perfect. It just has to be with the people you can get together, and sometimes they're imperfect vessels, and that's just the way it works. So anyways, I would argue that it was his creative social media-based humor-based anti-corruption videos and movement that really made him a problem for Putin because he really did a good job at appealing to the Russian people while also trying to expose Putin. And I think one of the reasons he was successful is because he not only focused on corruption in Russia and from the Kremlin, but he also did so by mocking Putin and his cronies. I'll talk about it a bit more in a little bit, but um, some people will say, you know, that... Navalny shouldn't be celebrated because in his early years, he was more of a right-wing 
anti-immigration nationalist with some views that people could maybe deem xenophobic or even borderline racist. And this is true. Um, back in, I think it's 2013, uh, Moscow, or attempt to be the mayor of Moscow, he, he did refer to people from Central Europe and the Caucasus Mountains as cockroaches. He was very against immigration from that region. And from my understanding, he never really apologized for these stances and comments, but he did slowly evolve and become more of a moderate or even sometimes a progressive on some issues. But I, I think he never really talked about these issues or apologized for some of the things he said in his early days. And I'll talk about more of them later, but this is just to paint this point is that I think he was working to try to bridge the divide in opposition to Putin, which sometimes was nationalists, right wing nationalists, and sometimes it was liberals. And he wanted to, you know, unite Russians against Putin. And he had to kind of appeal to a pretty unique band of opposition movements, which are not always good. And this meant that the coalition would be rocky. And you kind of have to bring everyone on board. And that's why he's a complex figure, no doubt. So and I think he was able to bring these different groups on board because focusing on corruption can kind of appeal to a lot of different people. And of course, he built both a political movement and a media team, and they focused on the excess and corruption of the Russian government. One example I like is that when he returned to Russia in January 2021, that's again when he's detained for the final time, I guess you could say, right before he boarded the plane, he posted a film titled Putin's Palace, the story of the world's largest bribe. And he put this out on YouTube, which he usually did, which I think is genius too, because it also then gets played in the West. And he's not just a figure inside of Russia, but he becomes more international as well. But basically, from my understanding, they used drone footage, secret plans, 3D visuals and reconstructions. And they also talked to construction workers. And basically, this, the, the video, from my understanding, I actually haven't seen it. I've heard about it, but haven't seen it. But they basically tell the story of this Black Sea villa that was worth about $1.3 billion. And they talk about the construction of this villa. And basically, it contains a hookah bar, a hockey rink, a helipad, a vineyard, oyster farm, <laughs> which is an interesting one, a church. And basically, Putin built this place. And the video goes over the costs and the financial trickery to build this place. And basically what Navalny's doing is, you know, Russians are not doing particularly well financially, most of the population, I mean. And he's kind of asking his viewers, how did Putin pay for this with just a government salary? <laughs> right? I mean, say what you want about like other Western leaders. I don't think Angela Merkel could afford this. I don't think Emmanuel Macron could build this. Boris Johnson couldn't build this. Joe Biden, no. The Obamas are wealthy. They're not building this. So he's kind of going like, okay, the Russian people are struggling. How does their leader buy this unless he's completely corrupt and completely embezzling funds and, and just working with his cronies? And also he did other documentaries over the years on like Sergei Shogu, who's the defense minister. And so, yeah, he was just pissing off those at the top. And I would also note that I, I think one of the key parts of this is the humor and mockery. I find that if humor and mockery are done well, they can really be important tools for standing up and criticizing some some regime like Putin's. And, him, and Navalny and his allies and his media guys really did this well. And Ann Applebaum has a good piece in The Atlantic, like she usually does, and it elaborates a bit on this. Um, I'm just going to read a little section. She writes here in quotes, The power of the film, and she's talking about the 2021 film again. She writes, The power of the film 
was not just in the pictures or even in the descriptions of money spent. The power was in the style, the humor, and the Hollywood-level professionalism of the film, much of which was imparted by Navalny himself. She continues later, This was his extraordinary gift. He could take the dry facts of kleptocracy, the numbers and statistics that usually bog down even the best financial journalists, and make them entertaining. She also writes later on, On screen, he was just an ordinary Russian, sometimes shocked by the scale of the graft, sometimes mocking the bad taste. He seemed real to other ordinary Russians, and he told stories that had rele uh, relevance sorry, to their lives. And that is something I think that's important and why he was probably a good vessel to do this because he didn't focus as much on the politics, but he focused on what the Russian government was doing for the average, for the average Russian. And I was reading that a poll conducted in Russia a month after this video came out revealed that one in four Russians had seen it and another 40% had heard about it. So yeah, I mean, if you're Putin, you're going shit. Like, this is not good. And... I should also add that Navalny, other than just being creative and putting out informative and funny documentaries, he was also a powerful civic and political leader that I think held a mirror up to showcase Putin's morally broken regime. And while Putin's regime seemed just devoid of you know, liberal values and openness and fighting for the people, he tried to be a contrast to that. And again, he's not a perfect guy either. And I have to keep reiterating that because I'm sure someone will go like, well, he said this in 2018 or he, he was at the Russia march in 2008 and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, not a great guy all around, but yes. And I've always found it interesting because <laughs> he would run for races um, in the 2010s, mainly kind of the mid 2010s. And even if he knew he could never win, I think what he did well was, again, he held a mirror up to the sham elections and the broken system because he, he got a lot of fundraising, a lot of support, and then he would never win. So I think he would show how much of a just stupid um, Potomkin election a lot of these were. And he just wanted to show how hypocritical everything was. And also it was always telling because he would run and then, you know, there'd be trumped up charges about embezzlement or corruption. They'd try to put him back in prison. There was the one time where he was attacked and almost blinded in one eye completely. But all of this is good press for him. Even if he ends up in prison or barred from elections, it shows, I think, that the Putin regime is scared of him. And, okay, here's, here's one example of, of his political stuff. So in... This was in 2013. He ran for the mayor of Moscow. And in July of that year, he registered as one of the six candidates for the mayoral election. And then in late, so on, okay, yeah. So on the 17th of July, just to put a timeline into this, he registered as, as one of the six candidates for the mayoral election in Moscow. A day later, he was sentenced to a five year prison term for embezzlement and fraud, char fraud charges that were declared in 2012. And interesting, though, just to show the power he had, just hours after the sentencing, he pulled out of the race and called for a boycott of the election. But basically, his campaign was successful in fundraising at really extreme levels. Um, and, and to put some numbers on this, basically out of the 103.4 million rubles that were part of his electoral fund, 97.3 million of them were transferred by individuals throughout Russia. So again, kind of a grassroots campaign where people are going, we're going to send small amounts. And apparently this was unprecedented in Russian elections. And so again, I mean, if you're, ch if you're playing, um, what scares Putin bingo, 
this is another you know spot to check off here because now you're getting individual transfers from people throughout Russia. Yeah, you don't want this guy in the election. And but it also shows to me just the clout this guy had and why, yeah, you don't want him alive. He's better dead. And also Navalny was kind of known as recommending strategic voting because he obviously had a huge platform to do so. And what I mean by strategic voting is it doesn't mean he's running, but he's basically putting out videos and telling his supporters, here are five candidates running for mayor of Moscow. Vote for this person because they are anti-Putin or they are the they are in the least agreement with Putin. So he would give people options that were against the Kremlin's you know, proposed figures or talking heads that were running, etc. And also his involvement went into the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which was a team of Russian exiles who mainly were living abroad. And they put out videos and worked to investigate Russian corruption, tried to get the truth to Russians. He was kind of one of the main figureheads of this. Some call him the spirit of it. And again, I think he was somewhat brave to say, I know I'm coming back to Russia, though. I'm not going to do this from abroad. I'm going to be a figure. I'm going to I'm going to hold a mirror up to the regime again. And Ann Applebaum brings up a great point in that article I referenced earlier. She writes in quotes, he is also dead because he returned to Russia from exile in 2021, having already been poisoned twice, knowing he would be arrested. By doing so, he turned himself from an ordinary Russian into something else, a model of what civic courage can look like in a country that has very little of it. Not only did he tell the truth, but he wanted to do so inside Russia, where Russians could hear him. I think it's very well said. Anyways, before we move on to Tucker Carlson's uh, useful idiot or fellow traveler Potomkin visit to Moscow, I do want to talk about Navalny's legacy. So I think it is important to talk about his nationalism and what some of his critics say about him, because over the years he has said and believed and done things that I definitely don't agree with. Um, he has evolved over the years, and I'll talk about some of his changes in policy in a minute. I do think he's less extreme now. He used to just kind of be a kind of a normal right-wing Russian politician, but now he seems more involved in the anti-authoritarian cause, and people change, and people, I, I totally accept that, you know. Plus, and as I've said, plus you can't always pick the perfect opposition to the dictator. Anyways, Masha Gisin, um, one of my favorite Russian journalists, she has a great piece in New York Magazine. I think it's two years old. I want to say it, came, oh God, three years old now. Jesus, that's right, we're in 2024. So three years old, came out in 2021, and it actually just kind of goes over her complex thoughts on Navalny. Just to give her a, just to paint a few of the things she talks about, she highlights the difference in what academia thinks of him. There's the NYU professor Elliot Bornstein, and this is a major academic commentator on contemporary Russia. And he wrote on Facebook, <laughs> so not, not quite as great, but he wrote on Facebook, Navalny, he's not Nelson Mandela, he's Aung San Yu Kyi. Um, and, and as we know, she was, well, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. Her party, the National League for Democracy, kind of helped get deny power, I guess you could say, to Myanmar's military dictatorship. But since then, she's kind of lost her ability. Some say she's helped oversee the Rohingya genocide, or at least not been able to stop it. I don't think that's a great comparison, to be completely honest. But then Giesen, sorry, also writes in her piece, on the other hand, several academics, politicians, and policy experts have nominated Navalny for the Nobel Peace Prize. 
She then writes, an initiative that now includes Lech Walesa, or sorry, Walesa, the former Polish president and leader of the Solidarity Trade Union movement, who received the prize in 1983. Kiesen also writes, the effort was launched last September by Alexander Etkind, a Russian exile professor at the European University in Florence, and in her opinion, the single most insightful scholar of contemporary Russian culture and politics. My, my thoughts would be some of the people that think he's bad and we shouldn't be celebrating him, they're again looking at him through the lens of Western progressive liberal values and not through the situation in Russia. That would be kind of my main takeaway. And so just to paint a few of the things that have led to his reputation as being somewhat of an ultranationalist, it's just from things that he basically said over a decade ago and some of his actions from over a decade ago. A little history lesson here. We're not going to go too far into it. 2007, he left the Socialist Democratic Party Yabloko, which he was the deputy head of the Moscow chapter for, and he started a new political movement, basically. And this new political movement was called NARAD, or which is the acronym for the National uh, Russian Liberation Movement. And basically... When he started being involved in this, he put out a bunch of statements. Again, this is prior to 2010, and mainly the statements were pro-gun and anti-immigration. Giesen writes in the New York er, in New York Magazine, in quotes, Navalny recorded two videos to introduce their new movement. They were his debut on YouTube. One was a 40-second argument, yeah, 40-second argument for gun rights. The other, a minute long, featured Navalny dressed as a dentist, presenting a slightly confusing parable that likened inter-ethnic conflict in Russia to cavities and argued that fascism can be pre prevented only by deporting migrants from Russia. Navalny closed his monologue with, in quotes, we have a right to be ethnic Russians in Russia, and we will defend this right. Also over the years, it was in 2008, he took part in the Russia March, which is kind of a right-wing demonstration. A lot of ultra-nationalists there. Some had swastika-like symbols. And then, of course, in 2008, he also supported Russian aggression in Georgia, which was what the majority of Russians supported. And, you know, some people have said, oh, he was just told to go to this Russia march or go there to support free speech. He didn't actually agree with them. One could probably believe that. But then, of course, in 2013, he had those illegal immigration comments um, about Central Asia where I talked about, you know, he called the caucus, um, cockroaches, that type of thing. And then I think one of the more recent things that he's flipped on, but is was sort of troubling, and critics bring it up a lot, is that after Russia occupied Crimea in 2014, he opposed the invasion, but did not also agree with just giving Crimea back to a post-Putin Russian government. So again, complicated guy, right? And I, And I think this is something I've talked about earlier too, is that his views have really changed, though. He's never apologized, really, for his xenophobic videos or totally explained why he attended the Russian march. But he's also now in support of same-sex marriage, left-leaning economic positions, anti-corruption laws, human rights. He's also now a critic of what's happening in Ukraine. So he's evolved, for sure. And as I said earlier, I think he hasn't apologized for some of the things he said because he understands that he still needs some more nationalists and right-wingers as well as liberals and anti-Putin people. He needs to bridge that divide and bring everyone on his team. And again, you can't, like the world is just not perfect. You can't have just the perfect symbol of opposition, right? And we'll wrap this segment up, but it's a shame he died. He was an important figure. He's left behind 
his wife and children. And I, I guess he believed that, you know, holding a mirror up to the Putin regime was the most important thing. And uh, I hope he rests in peace. He will be remembered. And it's just sad because the the entire opposition movement has really been hurt by this. And again, I mean, if I would hope more, a lot of conservatives in the United States come out against this because this guy actually is someone that you would think conservatives would get behind. Kind of a right-wing political figure who opposes corruption, opposes the deep state, opposes authoritarianism, and also agrees with like economic liberalism and open society. You would think that's what American conservatives would want, but I haven't seen a whole lot of that so far, so it's really too bad. Moving on, let's talk about Trucker Carlson, as I've said enough times by accident that I want to just start calling him that. But in, an, in a very serious note, A, his interview with Putin has backfired. I think that's pretty clear at this point. But also, in a more serious note, I think one has to wonder why Putin, the Kremlin, whoever actually allowed um, Alexei Navalny to die, why they felt so emboldened to let him die at this exact time. Obviously, as I've talked about before, it is not rare for the Russian government to openly kill political opposition figures, right? We've seen it happen dozens of times since Putin's been in power just alone. But I don't know. Someone like Navalny is such a big figure around the world. Back during the Soviet times, they, re they really wouldn't have thought about openly just killing an, an opposition leader because, especially someone with a lot of international clout, because it would just be so easy for the international community to condemn them. But right now, it seems like Putin thinks that there's really not going to be but much backlash in the West. And it kind of helps when someone like Tucker Carlson comes to Russia allows Putin to give him a history lesson of just false history half the time, rant for an hour, make fun of Tucker, and Tucker puts it out, and then Tucker, you know, takes his tour of Moscow and is surprised about how nice the supermarkets are and subways. I, I, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say Tucker directly has blood on his hands. There's, there's, it's, it'd, it'd be crazy to say that. But I think Putin feels emboldened when figures like, like Tucker Carlson come to his country, praise the infrastructure, praise the country, suck up to him, say the United States is in worse shape. That stuff, that stuff hurts. And so the timing is weird. And I hope Tucker gets questioned more about this. But Putin, I think, generally feels that the new America first national conservatives don't really care. And a lot of them even, you know, like the Viktor Orbans and the Putins. And so he probably felt like now was a time when he could probably get away with some pretty bad stuff without too much criticism. And this is as, you know, there's a Ukraine funding bill that's not even going through Congress right now. So I think Putin feels pretty good. But getting to Tucker Carlson, this whole tour to Russia he's done, it really makes me wonder if he is just a useful idiot or has become somewhat of a fellow traveler who now sympathizes with Putin's politics. And it's actually kind of hard to tell. Useful idiot or fellow traveler. And you know, a useful idiot is a person that kind of propagandizes for a cause, usually a bad one, and but they do it without fully comprehending that they're doing it or that the cause's goals are bad. And basically, this would mean that they are kind of cynically being used by the cause's leaders. And in a sense, you kind of see that when Tucker goes there claiming to want to have a genuine interview with Putin, but then lets him just steamroll all over him. But then at the same time, 
A fellow traveler is someone who sympathizes with and often furthers the ideals and programs of a specific group or political party. And you kind of have to also go, well, Tucker Carlson went to Hungary for a week, like a year ago, when he was still on Fox News and interviewed Viktor Orban and talked about how the country was fighting the woke mob. And then he's having Jair Bolsonaro on when he went down to Brazil for like a week to do his show there. And now he's doing his tour of Moscow. I mean, if you draw a through line between the people that Tucker likes to prop up in the international community, they all kind of have the similar right-wing national conservative views. And I mean, I think Tucker is becoming somewhat of a useful fellow traveler or a fellow useful idiot, like kind of a mix of both, because I think at first he genuinely just is has become so radicalized against elites in the United States that he does whatever they don't do. So say the elites, the Democrats support Ukraine, he now just by instinct feels like he needs to give the counterpoint and defend Russia. But then at the same time, his rhetoric over time has become more aligned with these Viktor Orban types involving the culture wars, foreign policy, intervention abroad. And, and it seems like he, may, he might have started off as a useful idiot. And that's why he was parroting, you know, he was parroting Russian talking points and Russian news was actually using him to convince people that the war was okay. But now it seems like maybe he actually believes some of this and maybe this pilgrimage to Moscow was just the next step in his journey, <laughs> something like that. Now, the part of me that does think maybe he is becoming more of a fellow traveler or someone who just actually agrees or wants to paint Russia in a better light than it has is his tour that he took through Moscow, where this is a smart guy, used to write great pieces for the National, or the, sorry, the Weekly Standard, wrote for the National Review for a little bit, clearly knows foreign policy fairly well. So for him to go now to Russia and argue that Moscow felt safer, cleaner, and better than all American cities, the supermarkets have more supplies in them, he knows better. He knows he was taken on a tour where the wealthy parts of Moscow are. He knows is that if he went to rural Russia, the United States would be much better off. So let's talk about his, you know, Potomkin Village tour of Moscow that apparently has radicalized him or whatever. So Graham Wood writes in The Atlantic, and this is a good piece I recommend people read. It's called, excuse me, What Tucker Carlson Saw in Moscow. And in the piece, uh, Wood writes here in quotes, he went to a grocery store and was astonished by what ordinary people could apparently buy. He even managed to meet a local history buff and sit down for tea and conversation. Carlson, who had never previously visited Moscow, declared himself radicalized against America's leaders by the experience. I found it funny because then <laughs> Tucker also talks about, you know, after talking about how great the subways are and the supermarkets and talking to this I guess armchair historian and getting tea with him, Tucker does make it clear that he doesn't actually want to live in Russia, but more he's mad about how Americans have to deal with crime and poverty and grittiness. And he saw none of that guys in Russia on his Moscow tour. So he thinks Russia must be better. And that I guess that radicalized him against the American elites. <laughs> of course, this is all absurd, but we will continue. Um, Wood, bring, Wood yeah, brings up a good point going back to the article, though. He writes in quotes, 
Many commentators have guffawed at, at Tucker Carlson's Russiaphilia and pointed out that Russia's murder rate is roughly that of the United States and that its citizens are dirt poor, about a fifth as wealthy per capita as the citizens of the United States overall. And this is kind of aside the point, but it's also funny because Tucker talks about free speech and how they're trying to cancel him, and that's why he does his own show, and how the media and the deep state don't like people like him to share their voice. But then, I don't know if he's just being ignorant about it or just doesn't want to talk about it for his own reasons, but Russia has a lot less free speech. And yeah, the U.S. right now has definitely some crime issues, homeless issues, cities are not doing as well with the rise of fentanyl, etc., but in Russia, free speech is not there, and opposition to the government, speaking out against the government, can end you up like our buddy Alexei Navalny. So it is such a strange argument. And just because he goes on one little trip to Moscow, now he thinks he understands all of it? I don't know. And also, like, going back to the Grime Wood piece for a second, I think he touches on something that's also very important. And it's the, it almost seems like Tucker maybe has this kind of outdated view that like the Cold War is still going on and the economic situation is horrible. And if you go to a grocery store, all the stores are empty and there's shortages on goods and people are waiting in long lines just to get the bare essentials. And I think as in general, that's just not the case anymore. Um, Russia's modern economic situation is significantly different. And it seems like he fell for this idea that he, he went there expecting it to still be like 1985 and when it actually has stuff in grocery stores and not everything is like this communist state, he's like, oh, see, it's better. And it's like, no, two things can be true at once. Like Putin's autocratic regime has just gotten more efficient, first off. And second off, it's just different. It's not a communist like surveillance state. Now it's kind of this like neo-kleptocratic regime that does allow the guise of economic growth and ind individualism, but also you can't really oppose the government. So it's weird. And um, Wood writes in The Atlantic here, an idea ripe for dispelling among Americans at this particular moment is that life in Russia must be stuck because the frigid depression of the Cold War never ended. In those days, ordinary citizens were spied upon and tortured and killed, and the shops were empty, save for substandard goods at prices few could afford. Woods writes later, Russia is different. The state repression is much more limited, though no less brutal towards those who attract its attention. And, like, again, useful idiot, fellow traveler, I don't know, but Tucker is clearly putting that out there. And, you know, what blows my mind is he could have picked to go to any country and talk about how good their system is. Like, I lived in Madrid for a long time. They have a much better metro system, subway, whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> excuse me, than the United States. Japan and Thailand and uh, Germany and Spain and lots of places have good grocery stores. I find the politics in some of these countries can also be good. So why Russia? Why is he so precisely talking about Russia? He never actually tells us why, but I think we can all assume. Anyways, we're running out of time. i got to get going. Um, we'll have to probably talk about this this reaction to Russia developing something in space uh, tomorrow, probably. But I do just want to end with this clip of Tucker, <laughs> Tucker at the World Government Summit, and he is asked about why he didn't push back on Putin more. And he gives kind of the thing Trump told Bill O'Reilly in 2016, where he says, oh, you think we're so good? You think we don't kill people? It's troubling. We're going to end with that, and um, I'll be back. 
soon. I'll be back soon. Uh, have a great rest of your holiday. And yes, anyways, let's end on this really happy thing that Tucker says that I think sums up his changing worldviews perfectly. And all I can say is, Tucker, good luck Who's on your journey. The devil's advocate. But advocate away. Yes. Okay, I'll tell you. You should challenge in, in, in the rules of an interview, and you're a master in, in, your, in your business. Uh, it's not for me to give you a lecture about that, but you should challenge some ideas. For instance, uh, you, you, you didn't talk about freedom of speech in, in Russia. You did not talk <laughs> about Navalny, about assassinations, about, about the restrictions on uh, opposition in the coming uh, elections. I didn't talk about the things that every other American media outlet talks about Why? exclusively. Yes, this because is my those question. are covered, and because I have spent my life talking to people who run countries in various countries. But then again, didn't Tucker say he was going there because no other journalist would talk to Putin, so he was going to ask the tough questions? Come on, dude. And have concluded the following, that every leader kills people, including my leader. Every leader kills people. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people, sorry. That's why I wouldn't want to be a leader. Um, that press restriction is universal in the United States. I know because I've lived it. I've you know, asked my former, you know, I, I've had a lot of jobs. Um, and I've done this for 34 years, and I know how it works. And... Um, there's more censorship in Russia than there is in the United States, but there's a great deal in the United States. And so, I, you know, at a certain point, it's like people can decide whether they think, you know, what, what countries they think are better, what systems they think Sir, are better. I, 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 I just I, want to know what he thinks. That was the whole point. Yeah.